The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place, for the Lord has his eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. I know what you're thinking. Okay, Hadrach and Damascus, right. All the tribes of Israel, what does this have to do with Easter? Well, that's a fair question, and it doesn't. <laughs> well, sort of, kind of. Okay. Zechariah, who wrote those words that are inspired by the Holy Spirit, started with these Syrian cities. He listed all the lands of this region that Alexander the Great would conquer with great potency if you've not read your history. He goes on to list the Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon. Sidon acquiesced. They <laughs> held up the white flag. Tyre tried to defend itself and was crushed. These Philistine cities were also crushed. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be an uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. War and death throughout that land, that whole area. I mean, it's retribution for terrible, terrible sins, yes. But the point today is that war and more war is the theme of these prophecies. But some of the remnant of the people left in those places will someday convert to faith in the true God. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. God becomes a protecting army for Jerusalem. He himself becomes the warrior. What we've read here is all the more wondrous when we realize that it was penned around 500 years before we the events we celebrate today. Okay, Not just Easter, but the whole week leading up to it. Starting with the great celebration of the people as Jesus rode in the town on Palm Sunday, which we celebrated last week. And as we read the very next thing Zachariah says, it also helps to know that those who lived as the people of God, Israel, were sometimes called Zion. Okay? War, war, and more war, and rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Wait a minute. Got war, war, more war leading up to... What? The arrival of your king, people of Zion. The one who protects you. The one who saves you. The one who is righteous. But humble? On a donkey? You know, what kind of war is this? There are a great number of predictions, also called prophecies, of future events in the Old Testament. Many, like this, are prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah. Both his first coming, after they wrote, but 2,000 years ago, and the second coming, which is yet to happen. Zechariah and Isaiah, Isaiah were given the most extensive sets of prophecies to share with the people. And here, Zechariah tells what would happen over the course of the next 500 years. Do you know what happened 500 years ago? 
neither did I. <laughs> but I should have, because in 1517, one Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses on the door of the castle in Wittenberg, which changed the world forever. The Reformation started from that. I should have known that one, yeah, I bet, but I did <laughs> But usually, 500 years ago, includes things like this. In 1517, also, there was the Battle of Redinia. Everybody? <laughs> the Turkish forces of Salem I defeat the main Mamluk army in Egypt under Tuman Bay. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard of it either. How about this? The Portuguese merchant, I can't even say his name, Freneo Pierres de Andrade meets the Ming Dynasty Chinese officials through an interpreter at the Pearl River Estuary. <laughs> This is where that teenage thing, whatever, comes in. <laughs> it probably was pretty important stuff back then. But if you had asked Salim I or Feriano Perez what they thought about the American foreign policy of 2017, I'm thinking they're going to blink at you. <laughs> or worse, I mean, who are we kidding? The first map with the name America on it was published only 10 years earlier than that. Most people didn't even know the name America. So when Daniel, nearly 600 years before Jesus rode into Jerusalem, told when it would happen to the day, well, that's pretty fantastic. Think about it. God told Zechariah and Daniel to tell everybody about it centuries before it happened. Amongst other things, this is obviously an important event. And okay, what is this event and how are we to understand it? Well, let's first finish our little history lesson here. The Greeks destroyed the nations, as Zacharias said. Then the Romans conquered, well, everything. <laughs> and what would happen when a Roman general completed a successful campaign? He returned to Rome where there was a great parade, a ceremony. But he would wait outside the city until all the people came out and lined the streets to shout praises to him as he rode his war horse into the city in triumph. Okay? And incredibly, this relates to Daniel's 600-year-to-the-day prophecy, Palm Sunday. So let's peek over Matthew's shoulder to watch as it unfolds. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Centuries later, just like Zechariah said, exactly when Daniel said, the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on their cloaks and he sat in them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, that followed after him, were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! A great celebration for their king who would conquer all their enemies. <laughs> but why did they all shout what they did? How can an entire group of people all start to say the same thing? Well, Hosanna means save, O Lord. So technically it's a prayer, but it also become a praise. You know, God will save us, so to ask him is to know he will, right? And it sounds good. And in fact, this is a direct quote from Psalm 118. 
But we still have our question, right? (laughs) How did they all together sing this and shout this particular song at the same time? Because God arranges things so beautifully. (laughs) For centuries, and actually still to this day, the Halil, the praise, the Psalms 113 to 118, is sung by Jews at every great festival every single year. To this day, thousands of years later. This was the beginning of the Passover celebration. And these joyous refrains would have been fresh in their minds because they had just sung them praising God for the day when the Messiah would come. And here He is! They're using the combination of Hosanna with Son of David. That shows that their hope that Jesus was the Messiah was where they were. And no wonder they were excited. And when He entered the city, entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd says, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. No, wait. <laughs> Why did some of them know who he was and others didn't? Now remember, we're talking the first century here. There's no TV, no internet, no pictures, no newspapers, none of that. The only way you knew what someone looked like was if you'd actually seen him. Jesus had done most of his work up north in Galilee, in the country. So the, the city people in the capital, Jerusalem, they didn't know who was being proclaimed the Messiah, the Christ. So the crowds that had, that had followed him told them. So, well, let's back up again. So we had that wars and more wars and then the Messiah. Let's consider Jesus' actions immediately after he is recognized and publicly proclaimed in that big parade as the Messiah. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now here, he acts like a warrior. (laughs) Bunch of rip-off artists hawking their wares, cheating the people as they sold them the things they needed to participate in the Passover. And they weren't just charging exorbitant fees. They were hindering people from worshiping God in the sanctuary. Get your pigeons here! Special prices on Passover sheep! You know, come on, buddy, come on over, over here, over here, over I Can you imagine? Right in the sanctuary, where people were supposed to be focusing on God, they were screaming, trying to rake in all the dough that they could. And then there's those priests who should have been protecting the temple, but we're instead taking a cut on every sale. We have historical documents that show us that. They put together all sorts of rules to protect their turf. For instance, proselytes, people who converted to belief in God, they weren't allowed beyond this court, and neither were women. But Isaiah, one of the great prophets who foretold of the coming of the Messiah, wrote that God said this should be a house of prayer for all peoples. And then, oh, Jesus' choice of words, (laughs) den of robbers. That comes from the writing of that prophet Jeremiah that we read in a scripture where he's criticizing the Jewish leaders of his time for their evil behavior. Those priests in Jesus' time, those scribes and Pharisees, who should have done it right, they knew exactly where Jesus got those words. <laughs> I'm thinking they were pretty irritated with him. Yeah. And catch this. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The blind and the lame came into the temple 
to be healed by Jesus. Now, there is a law in the Old Testament, that's the only part of the Bible they had then, that said blind or lame priests weren't allowed to serve in the temple. But there was no restriction placed against the blind and lame being in the temple worshiping God. But the rulers of Jesus' day had restricted them also from coming into the temple to worship. I don't want those messy beggars in here. So Jesus healing them right there in the temple is another claim of authority over and a censor of those rulers. And of course, a pretty effective demonstration of his ability to bring salvation, yes? <laughs> Something else the chief priests tried to pretend they alone could give. <sighs> but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of God, David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? They saw the wonderful things he did, but they heard the children repeating what their parents had sung out during the great parade. And they're indignant. So they completely overlook the wonderful things that he did. They saw them, but they overlooked them. Why? How could they do that? Because Jesus getting honored as the Messiah right there in the house of God would upset that temple hierarchy <laughs> as much as Jesus upset those tables. <laughs> and that hierarchy gave them their power. So they verbally accosted him. Do you hear that? And Jesus said to them, yes. <laughs> Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? This quote of scripture by Jesus, it's him claiming, yeah, their praise is correct. That's right. Which means he was directly at war with those sinful Jewish leaders. And with all that is happening... Yeah, they, they recognize the people are all behind Jesus. They just had the big parade. You know, we're not. So they have to back off. But the very next morning, they're back with a new plan of attack. <laughs> and in Jesus' answer, we get a hint at what love at war is really all about. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By whose authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? Well, you've got to read the story. It's really good. But basically, they evade the question. They don't answer it because they don't. They're, like, they're real sneaky little devils. <laughs> but why that question? From heaven or from man? I mean, is this just a battle of wits? Or is it maybe a sign to point to where the battle rages? The Apostle Paul wrote, Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The flesh, the physical, from man. The divine, which is from heaven. Like the baptism of John. From heaven, not from man. But what strongholds was Paul then, and 
and that presumably all Christians now are destroying. What are we supposed to be destroying? He quite clearly told another church, definitely including them in the fight, by the way, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's who we fight. This war is spiritual. We wrestle with the spiritual forces of evil. But, in one sense, we can't fight this war. We can't see it. We can't taste it. We can't smell it. We can't hear it. We can't touch it. By what means can we engage the enemy? (laughs) Well, again, in a sense, we can't. But then again, in the ultimate sense, we don't have to. Listen to the gentle words of the elder, the Apostle John. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is our advocate. But propitiation, that's really technical language, and it comes from their legal system. We don't have this concept in our system of law, but it's still in use in many parts of the world today. If you are guilty under that system, somebody else can pay. Someone not guilty can suffer your punishment. Get sentenced to five years in prison, somebody else can do that for you. That's propitiation. Wow. So listen to how the New Living Translation translators brought this thought up. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. Somebody has to pay the price. And frankly, we can't. So Jesus did. He fought the war we could not even see. Okay. Do you know where you're going to be this Friday? When all these people were cheering for Jesus, he knew exactly where he'd be five days later. He would be on trial for our sins. Preparing to be the sacrifice that atones for our sin. Taking our place in punishment. Fighting the battle we could not win. He knew that's where he would be. On that Sunday in the temple, Jesus refused to answer those false teachers. But on that Friday, five days after he stood up to the hypocritical religious rulers, he did answer a different ruler's question about the origin of his authority. So Pilate enters his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own account or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come to the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Hmm. What kind of war is this? 
What kind of war does love fight? Well, the kind that only our king could fight. One that didn't start and doesn't end in this world. One that isn't from this world. The kingdom Jesus promised is one that is of the truth. You know what Pilate said after Jesus told him, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth? Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said, what is truth? That's a good question. Too bad he didn't stick around to find out the answer. (laughs) But we know. John recorded what truth is. Just hours before Pilate asked the question, for which he really didn't even want an answer, Jesus had told John and the other apostles, I am the way and the truth and the life. Which way do I go? What is truth? How do I get real life? Maybe we should march to war following the one who alone can provide these things. The one who is the way and the truth and the life. Pilate didn't really want to know. And he turned Jesus over to the soldiers to be crucified. For us today, we need to hear what Jesus said on the cross at the very end. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. On the cross, Jesus won the war. What? Giving himself up to die for people who didn't even care (laughs) is winning the war? What kind of weird war is this? It's a spiritual war. (laughs) One that only Jesus, God the Son in human form, could seek. A battle that only he could fight. So we battle for the one who is the truth. And we battle in his power, not our own, because he won the war. In that Easter morning, dawn bright and clear. And Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, Our Lord, do we follow, do we serve as our Lord, the one who conquered death? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. He lives today. Jesus Christ is alive today. And one day there will be another battle in this war. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The armies of heaven? That's us. (laughs) I don't know if you do that. We follow the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Well, if Jesus Christ is your Lord, it's us. The war is won 
it is finished in one sense and one day the last battle will be fought. And then we will see in reality what John only saw in a vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He is making a new heaven and a new earth where war, spiritual or any other kind, will never be. Can never be. Because there will be no enemies there. (laughs) Will you be there? Jesus did rise from the dead in the same body that died on the cross. And thus he demonstrated that he is God the Son, fully human, fully God, and fully able to save us. And until the final battle, he fights for all those who are his. (sighs) But we're still in the midst of the battle. (laughs) With whom are you at war? Do you fight love? Or do you fight with love? The coming of Jesus was from heaven, not from man. It is the most important event of history. That's why God had multiple prophets record the details of his coming with such great precision centuries before they happened to encourage us, to make us know. His first coming is fixed in history. When he came humbly on a donkey, when he was cruelly crucified, when he was buried, but when he rose again, But the scriptures are also very clear that he will come a second time. I'm excited. (laughs) I can hardly wait to see Jesus. People around the world today, all around the world today, are gathered to share their excitement knowing that he is coming again. They're more than ready to see him. The great question is, are you ready to see the King of Kings? And the Lord of Lords. You you don't want to be driven out of the temple like like he had to drive those people back then. You want to be with, with us, with all of us who come to praise him. He is risen. And he is coming again. Let's pray.